Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry, or as it is today with Mark Stiving, our very own pragmatic marketing instructor, pricing expert, and all-around good guy. Good to hear from you, Mark. Thanks, Rebecca. Glad to know I'm not one of the best. (laughs) You are. Now, Mark, one of the fascinating things about pricing, one of the reasons I love talking to you about it, is that it's something you see literally everywhere, right? It's in all aspects of our lives. No one's immune from it. We all experience, and sometimes you experience pricing lessons in some of the most unexpected places. And so that is what we're going to talk about today, right? Excellent. I love I love just finding weird pricing situations and trying to figure out why the heck they did that. Exactly. And we have a good collection today. We've got bourbon, beer, horse sex, and ice cream. So it's a it's a big array of things we're gonna talk about. What a great day. Right? All right, so let's start. You and your lovely wife Carol went on a trip to Kentucky recently. Yes? Yes, we did. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about one of the things you did, right? Was do sort of a bourbon tasting tour, much like I had done for my birthday in Napa with wine. Yes. So just to be fair, I was in Columbus, Ohio, watching an Ohio State football game. And Kentucky Bourbon Trail is only about a three-hour drive from there. Well, then what would you have to do it then? Exactly. (laughs) But have to go. So we took a few days and we drove down to Kentucky and got to tour a few different distilleries, it was a fascinating experience. I, I loved it. Carol even liked it. So it was really fun. And, and I learned a ton about bourbons uh, that I didn't know before. But one of the things I found interesting, as always, is that you find these pricing situations. And there's a company or one of the distilleries called Woodford Reserve. And Woodford Reserve, all bourbons, they create a mash. They create essentially moonshine. And then they it's a clear color. And they put it in a barrel. And the Bourbon flavor typically comes from the barrel and how long you age it in the barrel and how where it's aged and all that is what's going to give it the flavors. And so what these guys did, which was pretty fascinating, was they would they would age it for seven years or so. And then they would take the bourbon out of that barrel and, and they would sell it. They package it. They call it Woodford Reserve or they would take some of it and put it into a different barrel and age it for another six months, eight months. And they would take that out and they would call it double oak. So it's a different product, slightly more expensive to make because they use that second barrel, but they only spent seven or eight months doing it. And they charged almost twice as much for the other bourbon, for the double oak. Now it's fascinating because it has nothing to do with what it costs them to make the product. It has to do with the flavor they were able to generate, uh, the demand, the price they could get away with charging. Uh, so I found that one really interesting because it's such a great example how costs shouldn't be driving pricing. And what really drives pricing is how much people are willing to pay. And people are willing to pay for better flavor, for the double oak. So was it twice as good, the flavor? <laughs> that depends upon people's perspective. And that's one of the great things about pricing is that some people think it's twice as good and they pay twice as much. And some people don't think so, and so they don't pay twice as much. Do they have a, a big difference in the quantity of the two? Oh, absolutely. Mm. They sell way more of their Woodford Reserve, the normal product, than they do in the a more expensive product. Mm, so there's a prestige, kind of harder to get kind of thing as well. 
Yes, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that because it's more expensive, fewer people buy it, so there's less demand. Uh, and yet there's enough demand that they're going to make money selling a higher, more expensive product to a small select set of people. Excellent. All right. So also when you were in Kentucky, though, you didn't just see the distilleries, correct? That is correct. You also visited some horse farms. It was interesting. When you're in Kentucky, they do two things. They make bourbon and they grow racehorses. They raise racehorses. And we went and did a tour of racehorse country. We got to visit a few racehorse farms. But in the end, what, what we saw was they were talking about the great racehorses. And here's where Secretariat was. And here's where Man of War was. And, and they talk about the, the horse. I wish I remembered his name, but he just won the Triple Crown. The American Pharaoh. Yeah, American Pharaoh, absolutely. And they talk about where he's at stud. That's the word they use, at stud. And so American Pharaoh, as this horse, um, I think it's a two-year-old, but American Pharaoh could easily race again next year. But the problem with American Pharaoh racing again next year is he wouldn't make as much money. right? Even if he won every race he entered, he's not going to make as much money. Because he gets paid in the ballpark of $100,000 per sexual activity. Wow. It's, it's a huge amount of money. By putting him out the stud, he's going to make so much more than he could possibly make racing. Even though he's born as a racehorse and he still has tons of racehorse capability, racing capability in him, that's not where he's most valuable. And, and the other thing I found fascinating is that we went and we saw some places where they were breeding other horses – and these horses, they only paid $5,000 to breed. Now, it's the exact same thing. It's just the same amount of work, the same amount of um, activities for humans being involved and how we go about the process. The only difference is which horse is doing the breeding. And obviously, American Pharaoh is worth a whole lot more than another horse that hasn't won the Triple Crown. And, and so if you think about it, what they're doing is they're charging what people are willing to pay. They don't know what the value is of the, of the semen that they're going to get, but they do know what people are willing to pay for it. And so therefore they charge it. And so then the lesson from both the whiskey story or the bourbon, apologies, uh, the bourbon story and the, the horse stories that our product managers and product marketers are listening can relate to their own products. How would you sum those up? What can they learn? Well, first, they have to learn that bourbon is a whiskey. Okay, good. I was wondering what the difference was. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's okay. And then the things we want to learn is that different people have different willingnesses to pay. And so we should be building our product portfolios such that we can charge different amounts to different people. When there's this huge difference in disparity and willingness to pay. So some people will pay $100,000 for a foal that comes from um, American Pharaoh. That's a huge deal, and we should find a way to get that. And similarly, if we can find people that are willing to pay us twice as much for our bourbon, is there a way that we could create a slightly better bourbon that we could get them to pay us more for? I'm sure you saw the exact same thing when you were in Napa Valley. Oh, absolutely. Yes. There were lots of variations. There were lots of premium brands. There was their, you know, their reserve, their extra, extra special reserve, their fancy reserve. There's all, they, you know, if there was a version for anyone willing to pay for it to some degree and, and same went down the other way, right? There are some of the biggest winery names that you know of that I had only seen their, their less expensive versions 
in the grocery store, right? And so I didn't think of it much as a very fancy brand, right? But then you see that they have this whole other upper, upper echelon of very respected wine. So it was pretty interesting. So another time when you were traveling with your beautiful wife, you went to Italy. And what should you do when you're in Italy? One of the things you have to do, of course, is get gelato. And you came across a great pricing example there as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was it was an interesting pricing example because I'd never seen this before. And so we wrote a blog about it. And it turns out that what happens is we, we Carol and I have been walking and walking and walking. Ugh. And we finally say, okay, let's stop and get some ice cream. We walk up to an ice cream shop and they have two different prices for gelato. One, if you're going to get it to go, one, if you're going to sit down and eat it there. And it was much more expensive to sit and eat it at their cafe using one of their tables than if you took it to go. Now, I've never seen that before. But as soon as you stop and you think about it, you say, wow, that just makes all the sense in the world. Because especially after walking all day, the value of sitting at that table Mm. was possibly more than the value of the ice cream. Interesting on that example, too, is that I I agree the value is more, but you would think that the cost could potentially be more the other way. It would depend, right? In my mind, I think that you could use, you know, dishes they could watch, they could wash if you ate your gelato at the store and they would have to use disposable dishes if they went away. But maybe they didn't do that. But either way, it wasn't based on what it cost them as it was based on the value the person would have. They were renting the table, per se. Yeah, essentially they were renting out the table. Now it turns out that after we wrote the blog on that and posted it, several people came back and said, this is a pretty common practice around the world. I've just never seen it in the United really? States. Yes. Huh. That it, yeah, no, that's very interesting. All right, when we're talking about travelers, we also have another example that one of your readers sent in when they were traveling to Memphis and they were at B.B. King's Blues Club. And if you're at a blues club and you are in Memphis, you should probably get a beer. So what did they learn when they ordered a beer? So it turns out that what this reader had found for us was he had, he was thinking about getting a big size beer instead of the normal size beer. So let's, for the sake of argument, call it a 16 ounce and a 24 ounce beer. And what he found was that if he were to buy the 16 ounce, it would have been a lower price per ounce than if he bought the 24 ounce. And, and he was really curious, what, what, what did we think about that? And it turns out, my opinion, is the reason that B.B. King would do this is because people, we've, we've gotten ingrained into the concept that said, when I buy bigger volumes, I get a better price per ounce. I get a better deal. And just because we expect it, we don't really do the math and try to figure out, is this a better deal? Is this not a better deal? We just make the decision and buy the bigger one. And I think that's what they're taking advantage of. Since we posted that blog, a couple of people have written in and said, oh, I see this at the grocery store. Mm. Once in a while at the grocery store, when you watch the, they even give you the label that says, here's the price per ounce. If you watch the price per ounce, you'll find products once in a while where the bigger size has a higher price per ounce. Interesting. I'm going to have to be more careful when I'm at the grocery store. So let's talk about how we can use that lesson from, from our friends at BB King and how we could apply it to our own products. What that says to me, if I was a product manager is what are the heuristics, there's a big fancy word that says, 
What are the rules of thumb that people use when they're making decisions about products? And so people often use these heuristics, um, such as we assume that bigger volumes are a better price per ounce, or we, believe it or not, 99 cents is a heuristic that people use. We look at that 99 cents and we assume something's on sale or it's a better deal. We just learn that. Can we understand what those heuristics are that people are using and then make sure that we could, and I hate to say this word, but maybe take advantage of that, maybe price to the point that if they're not going to look, we can get away with a higher price per ounce. That makes a lot of sense. So speaking of stores and shopping, um, when we talked a little bit about that, one of the people here at the office was talking about one of their favorite clothing stores that they always shop with online. And they were all excited because they had started to um, promote their buy one, get two free tops sale. And she was super excited. So she went on the site as soon as it started and she noticed that the cost of the tops had gone up significantly. So the week before she'd bought a top for 1980 and now that top was $49.50. So while she could get one of those and two other ones for free, it was less, but not nearly as much as she thought it would be. What can we learn from that? Wow. Wow. So let's just do the math and I'm going to do some rounding for just a second. So the top used to be $20. Mm-hmm. Now it's $50. Yes. When you buy one, you get two free. So you get three for $50 where you would have paid 60 for three. So it is a slight discount but it isn't a very big discount. No. So let's talk about what these guys just did. For anybody who didn't normally shop at this store, what they did was they set a price expectation that said this top is worth $40 or $50. This top is worth $50, but if you buy one, you get two of them free. And so anybody who doesn't normally shop gets a higher price expectation and they think they're getting a good deal. They think they're getting a, um, a discount or a special sale. On the other hand, our colleague at the office, she shops there regularly. She knows the price of the top. She sees this and she says, oh, this isn't a very good deal at all. And so she chooses not to, to partake. So what they've done is they've done some price testing and they're absolutely targeting new buyers. They're not targeting our colleague, even though they might've sent the ad, the, the advertisement to her, they're not targeting her, they're targeting another group of people. But the thing that I love about this lesson is that oftentimes we as companies think we wanna raise our prices and we're afraid to raise our prices. But if you think about this situation, yes, our colleague, she knew the prices went up, but how many people actually know the price of that shirt? Probably very few people. And so when they bring the price up and then they make a big special deal out of it, all of the other people didn't realize that they had just raised the price to make this happen. I'm not sure I'm a huge fan of the technique that they pulled, but in the end, it's really price testing. So they're raising price, putting things on sale, seeing if this has a higher demand, and it doesn't have a big impact as long as your market doesn't know the old price. And you certainly will uh, encourage more inventory to move, right? You're going to move more out of the store at this spot, at least is the idea in order. And they're going to have to show that they care about the discount in order to hit the three. One of the things we were talking about in the office the other day was how much more we will like, you know how on Amazon they have those add on products that are free shipping. If you spend up to a certain amount, like I will 
text my husband and be like, what else do we need? Because I'm determined to get to that pot where I don't have to actually pay for shipping for that $3.99 item. I'm probably spending more on these other items than, <laughs> than, than I do uh, to what I would have to pay for shipping for those. But like I, I go all out to hit that threshold and I guess I would buy three shirts instead of just one. Oh, absolutely. Why would you not? At this point in time, they didn't give you a choice of buying three or buying one at 20. They just gave you the choice of buying that, the three or not buying them. And so, yeah, they're absolutely going to move more inventory. People who make the decision are going to buy three instead of buying one and seeing if it works or buying two. They'll certainly get three of them and they'll get a slightly better price. But I'm sure the company is uh, is going to make out much better with the buy one, get two free. The, the big issue they have to be careful with, and I think all companies should be paying attention to this, and that's... I'm going to call it, I'm going to use the word price brand, where people have an expectation of pricing at your store. And pe- people may recall the JCPenney fiasco that happened a few years ago where Ron Johnson changed the business model that JCPenney was using, where JCPenney would often have sales and discounts, and he took it to an everyday low pricing model, and JCPenney's really suffered. And that's because people had built up this expectation that I was going to get deals and sales. And that's how I shop at pennies as I wait for the sales. And he took all that away and people stopped shopping at pennies. So the, a company like this retailer that we're talking about now has to be a little careful because people are going to get an expectation on what they, what type of store are they? Are they a store that has good prices or are they a store that has really high prices with frequent sales? And it's going to train shoppers as to how to shop. Because if I saw a buy one, get two free sale often, what I would say is I never buy anything at full price from that store. Mm. It's those rug stores that are always going out of business and they're constantly on clearance, right? So you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't go there if they weren't having that discount. Yes. And so we train our buyers, we train our marketplace as to what type of price model we use and they come to expect that and and that's how they're going to shop us. All right. Well, those were some uh, interesting tales from different places, weren't there? Yes, they were. Yes. Who would have thought bourbon, beer, ice cream, horses, and shirts had so much in common? All lessons we can learn. All right. So this was great. Mark, thank you very much. You once again proved that you are, in fact, one of the best minds in the industry. And we always enjoy having you on the podcast. So thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. And thank you for all of you listening. Please, if you see strange or interesting pricing examples out when your travels, be sure to share them with us at experts at pragmaticmarketing.com, or you can also share them on Mark's blog. So we'd love to, to get them, and we can talk about them here on a future episode. Don't forget to tune in next week for the next episode of Pragmatic Live. <laughs>